This recording is brought to you by the Goodness and Kindness Foundation. If you're walking down the street, smile to a stranger. Do a good deed for someone else. Let's all strive to make our impact in this world in order to make the world a better dwelling place for everyone. One small candle can light up a very dark room. So if each one of us do a positive action, one small deed, we will be able to cause a major, major effect of spreading goodness and kindness throughout the world. So let's do our part. Now, before you go and listen to this incredible conversation, I have a personal favor to ask you. Once you are done, please select the subscribe button and leave a review. Because when you leave a review, you are doing your part in helping other people find this podcast so we can inspire them too to listen to this conversation, to get inspired, and take action within their life. Hey, everyone. I'm super, super excited today to have with us a very, very special guest. Today, we have the honor to host my dear friend, Pranav. Pranav is one of the managing partners of an incredible firm called 314. So I highly advise you, before you continue listening, to go on Google, type in the letter three, and then type in the word one, and then four, and go check them. They are one of the top early stage VC funds based out of India. They've done incredible, incredible work, but not only by the fact they've done incredible work with the VC fund, today we have the honor to hear who Pranav is, what he stands for, what motivates him and what gets him up in the morning, and his thoughts in general about the Indian startup ecosystem. I am very excited to hear that. So Pranav, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ephraim. Very kind of you. That, that's, uh, that's a really nice introduction and great to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You're welcome. You're welcome. And it's an absolute honor. And there's multiple ways how to start off over here. But you know, one thing that I've seen currently, and I know you're a huge believer about India. You know, when I started my podcasting journey, I started a little over six years ago. I started off with interviewing Indian founders and VC funds from India. And this is when Flipkart was just acquired by Walmart for $15 billion, the first huge, huge major exit. I want you to catch me up and give me a rundown of what's been going on since then, why are you so excited about India? What's going on in India? What's all the noise about it that people are saying it's coming the second biggest startup capital in the world? I mean, I know it's the second biggest SaaS capital. And what, why are you so bullish about it? That's a great question. And I think, um, you know, lots of exciting anecdotes to share as well. So the way we think about the Indian ecosystem, we think of it as having gone through three very distinct cycles so far when the start of the third, as we speak. Uh, the first cycle was pre-2010. Um, back then, there weren't too many VC funds in India. And as, as hard as you looked, you wouldn't find too many internet companies, uh, the real internet companies that we call startups today. Most of the startups back then were B2B software companies. Uh, they predominantly built software for the rest of the world, maybe, maybe mostly in, in the EU and in the US. And these companies took time to scale. You know, B2B revenues, as you know, is hard. It takes time. You need to hire people, sales, marketing. And, and of course, uh, since there's not too much capital available, you're working with a tenth of the budget your competition has in the U.S. or elsewhere. So it's not surprising that those companies took 10 years, 12 years to become meaningfully large. And that venture outcome that you're typically looking for, the, the 50x, 100x in 10 years, there wasn't too much of that happening, unfortunately. Uh, something interesting happened around 2011 and 2012. And that's what we call this, the start of the second wave. So that, that's where Flipkart, Baiju's, Misho, you know, the companies that you know today, uh, they're huge, they're Decacons, uh, some of them have gone IPO. These are names that every household in India now knows, not only as a user, but as an investor as well, after some of their IPOs. 
these companies were real internet companies. And when they came into being, they were building sometimes the fundamental infrastructure for things like payments, collections, uh, deliveries. Uh, we didn't have the you know DHLs and, and, and all of that for local deliveries inside cities. So a lot of, lot of companies like Flipkart were spending most of their time building infrastructure from the ground up. So these companies needed a lot of capital. Uh, these companies needed a lot of capital in a very short span of time. And that's why you're not surprised to see that Flipkart being the best of its class came out so fast, uh, became so big. And of course, a very nice outcome for its investors that took that early risk. Full kudos to them. I think something interesting happened in India around 2015, 2016. India is an interesting country because it is the first country in the world to have open protocols and platforms called the India Stack. These are a collection of software utilities that makes it really simple for us to build basic utilities for our users without rebuilding them every time we launch a new service. So for example, every Indian today has a unique biometric ID. It's called the Aadhaar. It's the largest biometric ID system in the world. There's 1.3 billion people in India that have a unique Aadhaar identity. It's similar to the social security number in the US, except it's much more modernized. It's much more scalable. And just think about this, giving a billion people a unique ID, giving a billion people uh, a simpler way to open bank accounts, giving a billion people a free protocol to transfer money and make payments without paying MDRs and so on on the merchant side. A series of these software collections went live. And as a result of, of all of that meant new startups that were launching didn't have to rebuild all the stuff that Flipkart built for itself. So now that's when we saw the second wave transforming into the third, the ones that we're seeing today. Today, it takes five years for companies to become a unicorn. There are four in our portfolio. We've been around only for six years, a seventh year in motion. We have four unicorns already. So it's interesting to see that a wave of software comes live and suddenly the life cycle of a unicorn radically transforms in the country. So India, to summarize in our point of view, is this theater of step function transformation. It's not linear. It's sometimes very unpredictable. But largely, we know that there's just a series of evolutions happening that's going to make it easier and easier to reach millions more people that much faster and therefore build larger value in venture scale time. So it's been a phenomenal 15 years. I think uh, no one predicted India will reach the scale it has today for sure. And definitely wave three setting us up for a very exciting decade on a part of a 5 trillion GDP economy, hopefully by 2028 or 2030. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And you know, there's so many different little things you mentioned over there we could go deeper on. But one thing is I'm always amazed about, like you said, um, I've got the exact word to use at the biometric code that every single individual person has in order to open a bank account, cell phone service, yeah. so many different things, so much more simpler than the US, way more simpler. Like some things don't even make sense the way we have things over here. And when I speak to friends over there and I just hear how easy it is to transfer money between people and use the phones and just incredible. That's right. And, and simple examples, right? Uh, it takes us less than an hour to open a bank account without visiting the bank. I don't think you can do that in almost any other part of the world, right? And this is a fully KYC account. It's fully validated. It's verified that it's yours. And that's opened up this whole wave of banking innovation in India, both for businesses as well as individuals. Another very simple problem, you have Venmo in the US. I was a big user of Venmo as well. The only utility Venmo really solved is sending money back to your friends after a night out, right? And we don't need a Venmo for that. Any app in India that plugs into UPI can help you send money from your bank account to a friend's within six seconds. So it's, it's enormously friction-free and it just removes all the barriers and the cost to just making something as simple as money transfers work. So 
a series of these steps coming together all at once. And I think one of the most important things that happened in India was that the pricing for access to the internet also fell dramatically over this decade. So in the US, when I was in the US for a major part of the last decade, my AT&T bill was typically 80 to 100 bucks, right? Depending upon how much data I used. I think that's largely the case even today. In India, we're paying less than 20 cents per GB of data. It's the cheapest data pricing anywhere in the world. Cheaper than China, cheaper than Southeast Asia, uh, cheaper than Europe, of course. And when you have something that's this basic plummet in price, it just means more people have less reasons to not spend more time on the internet. And that's meant so much of their offline behavior also comes online. They're spending more money online, spending more time online. Their behaviors have transformed from offline to online as well. And of course, COVID has is, is contributed in interesting ways. It's accelerated a lot of that transformation. It's made people more naturally inclined uh, to using the internet to solve their daily services requirements. And I think all that put together has just meant the internet dam is grown far faster than anyone predicted. So it's, it's really a series of very interesting consequences coming together to make this an interesting ecosystem. I have to ask you, the personality or the character in general of people that grew up in India um, until the past decade has been very risk averse. It's like the parents you know, went to college and they wanted their children to go to college and get a regular job, a government job or some other type of job to be able to come home, to make sure they had their bills paid for. And they're very risk averse people. Where did that transformation shift come in where all young people now are like, wait, wait, I don't want to go down that path anymore. I want to create my, a chart of my own thing. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, by my experience, um, Indians have always been deeply entrepreneurial, right? Uh, so if we look back at, you know, it's an old civilization, just like so many other parts of the world in Asia, especially. Um, it's not that Indians were risk averse. It's more that they had a very specific style of entrepreneurship, right? It was community-led, it's very familial, uh, it's deeply relationship-driven, and there's trust built over generations, right? Uh, so the spice trade, for example, the diamond trade, the gold trade, in India has plugged into this global trade in so many interesting ways. That's why the British came here and, you know, the story of colonization and so on. So what happened with independence, I think, is we just lost so much so quickly as a country, as a people, that it took us a long time to recover. And I think it's a confidence issue more than anything. Um, it, it really, it's three generations of pain since independence. And I see that in my grandparents. Unfortunately, I've lost three out of four of my grandparents. On my mother's side, my grandfather had to join the Air Force to support his family. On my father's side, both my parents had to take a government job first, education and in, in other areas to start their family. Uh, so really, the only job opportunities we had, even though we were reasonably well-educated back then, uh, were with the government, right? So private industry, really, it took time to get, get that confidence back as a people. Uh, my father's generation, I think, were the first ones to see the hints of globalization start. And it, it's always the first thing that always starts in globalization is culture, right? Uh, so they heard rock and roll music. They saw the Beatles in the theaters. They saw, you know, Western movies in cinema. They started to see this, that there's a world beyond what they're seeing around them. And it kind of started this, this sense that, you know, we can do better than our parents. There's more to life than just, you know, thinking about the horrors of the past and so on. I think fast forward today, uh, my generation, we're millennials, uh, we're not Gen Z yet, but the millennials at least have seen a very different India change much, much faster. Uh, we opened up to the world, we, we dropped our very socialist, uh, unfortunately socialist ideals uh, very quickly in 1991. And India has grown at almost 9.5% from 1991 to 2022. 
That's 9.1% growth every year. It's amongst the fastest in the world. So I think um, the underlying story is that we just had to let people get their confidence back. It took three generations. And I think Gen Z is going to be a very interesting generation. They're going to be the closest to the US that we've ever had in India. They'll speak English first. They'll be on their phones more often than anyone else in the past. The internet is going to be a default part of everyday life. Um, they're going to be on TikTok more often than I'd like them to be. Of course, TikTok's banned now, so maybe that's a good thing. But there's a whole series of things that is changing so fast for Gen Z. You can already see that in my kids' generation. Uh, so it's an interesting set of transformations we've been through. And I hope, of course, millennials take full opportunity of the pain that we've served in the past. Hopefully, we look forward and say we can build a different India for ourselves and our children going forward. At what point did that shift or where did the shift come in you personally? Meaning, you know, you've been at this job now for 314 is, I think, seven years old right now. Seven, that's right. Seven years old. So you were at the beginning of the third turning of the decade. So that's post-2011 when, you know, Flipkart and everything else happened. At what point did it enter your mind and saying, hey, you know what? I want to go down this path. I want to build a venture fund. I want to be involved in the startup ecosystem, you know, and remove everything from the past, but say, you know what? This is my calling over here. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. And, and you know, I'm very fortunate, again, for the shoulders that we build upon, you know, what our parents and grandparents have been through. It's, it's important lessons for all of us in our generation. So I'm an engineer by training. Um, I've had the good fortune that my parents always prioritize education, just like so many Indian parents do. That's a great part of the culture here. As kids, you're really allowed to focus on, on getting good at something that you really like. For me, it was always engineering, building things. Um, I also had the good fortune of being accepted into Stanford right out of undergrad from, from Bangalore. Uh, so my eyes really opened when I landed on campus. Um, you're competing with the best in the world, really. And, and, you know, all the systems that you're used to in India, the exams, the cramming, you know, the, the tests. I'm sure you've heard dozens of anecdotes about how difficult the education system is here. There are 25 million babies here every year, Ephraim. We have almost 260 million kids in school and college. Uh, so the competition is intense. We're the size of Brazil, sub-20 population in India, and we're, it's monstrously competitive, right? It's a difficult place to be a kid. But that really prepares you to be, if you're truly committed and your eyes are open early, it prepares you to really be the best you can be anywhere that you go, right? So the, the, often the anecdote we hear is if you can build a company in India, you can scale it to any other part of the world. Uh, so that's true for education as well. If you can study here and be good at something, you're almost guaranteed to be good in most parts of the world. Uh, so Stanford opened my eyes. Um, uh, I landed in the year that Facebook went public. Steve Jobs passed away. Uh, Snapchat became this big company out of campus. Uh, Nutanix and a few others were going IPO. So we really saw this transformation happening on campus. Peter Thiel's book, uh, the course that he taught was the year that we joined We joined on campus. We got to see, see him teach that course live. Um, y Combinator was becoming huge. So they, they were quite common. So a whole series of things that all of us on campus, the start of the decade, were lucky enough to be around that gave us this interesting insight that we can actually take more risk than we thought we can. We don't need to start at a job in Cisco or Microsoft. Uh, we can just go and work for a startup directly. Some of us actually started startups right out of campus as well, which is fantastic. That's what Stanford's really great at. So, so my part took me to work at a startup. Um, I didn't start one. Uh, it was important for me to work underneath the founder and learn from this side of the table what it really means to build a company. Uh, we got acquired last year, so we saw a full cycle again in in, in, in uh, it took us nine years to get acquired, that's right. And as one of the early uh, employees, we got to do a little bit of everything from product management to software development, to design, to sales, to even pitch, pitching and, and raising capital. And the interesting gap I saw in my experience from my side of the table 
is that the best VCs we spoke to in the Valley were almost always VCs who built companies before, right? The operator turned VC. Uh, that's a common truism. Now everyone knows that that's great experience. And it brings a certain sympathy from the founder, right? And that's really important when you're on this side of the table. Uh, I came back to India often and I had a lot of friends who were starting companies. We, we spoke to each other about our experiences across time zones quite often. We had an office in Mumbai as well. So I got to come here and meet uh, part of our team in India as well. And I saw a big difference in the culture here between the VC and the founder back home. Uh, the VCs in India were largely very senior folks towards the end of their career, the early to mid 50s. Uh, but almost none of them had worked in technology before. They were investment bankers, they were consultants, really smart people, best in class again, no questions on, on those fronts. But they hadn't really built tech, they hadn't really scaled product, they hadn't really you know, f- worked hard to figure out growth on internet trajectories the way we were trying to solve for ourselves. right? Um, so I think there was a certain gap in culture that we realized in India was a problem founders faced every day. And in the US, obviously, it's a few generations ahead that problem has been solved by different people on the venture side of the table. Um, I saw that as, that as my next opportunity. I saw that as instead of thinking about what I do next, okay, we've scaled a company, we've passed series B, you know, we'll get an exit in a couple of years, we're clearly working backwards from that. What can I do next with my, with my time? Uh, instead of coming back home to join another startup, because I always wanted to come back and build here, um, someone gave me really good advice to think about starting a fund on, on our own. And that was a massive challenge because none of us were MBAs. And we realized that everyone else in India is, like I said, sales and marketing and, and investment banking, consulting, uh, the, the MBA trope, if you will. So we realized actually that's not a problem. That's actually an advantage. We'd be the only guys that look like us, that think like us, that have done what we've done, that will enter early stage funding and then try to build a VC firm from the bottom up in India. And seven years later, it turned out that was an interesting decision. The timing was good. It worked in our favor. Um, our theses were interesting. We were not doing anything mainstream. So we just found extraordinarily great teams doing things that no one else wanted to fund. And thankfully, we started with a very small fund. So we had a lot to prove with very little. And that made us work so much harder to get to the scale that we are today. So I think building something bottom up, uh, building that track record step by step, uh, that is what has made us good at what we do today. Right? So if there's anything that we, that we value today, it is what we've been through. And I think uh, exactly what founders go through as well when the company is large and when it's mature, um, they have a confidence that they've seen it from the start. I think without that confidence, we'd never be able to do what we did and do today. So I think that's how I thought about it. And that's the story of 314 in a nutshell as well. What were some of the early rejections you got in the beginning of building 314? People probably looked at you as these new kids on the block, probably laughed you off probably said, you know, and you know, I know a lot of the business mindset that people, people deal with over there, but I mean, in general around the world, when new young kids come up into the business, you know, the older generation tries to laugh them off, tries to get rid of them or, and, and multiple other things that come together with that. What was it like? <laughs> yeah, th- th- those are some, there are some painful memories, but you know, it's hilarious looking back. Um, yeah, I think I expected it to be difficult for sure. You know, my eyes were reasonably open, new there's a reason not too many people our age start VC funds in India back then. In fact, no one no one had. Um, and we knew it'd be tough. But uh, it was scary just why it was difficult. So I'll give you some anecdotes. Um, I reached out to maybe 70 or 80 VCs, right? Because, you know, I, I was in a startup myself. I used that as an excuse to just meet people and understand, you know, just get that advice on what we were doing, the challenges we were face, face, facing and scaling out. I sent out maybe 70 emails. I got maybe seven responses. Uh, so problem number one, uh, people don't just don't talk to people uh, when you reach out to them. Uh, there are blogs written now, Ephraim, on 
you need three warm intros to get into the the right partner at this fund and that's how you get you know 20 minutes with the partner and so on it's ridiculous that when you're in the business to work with the best founders there are more and more barriers to reach those people every day right and i faced those barriers myself <laughs> and i realized okay this this is an obvious problem to fix why would you put in more friction to finding the best founders right so that's problem number 1 problem number 2 when they did give me a meeting it was maybe 20 minutes 15 minutes 10 minutes um it's a little insulting i frame to get you know you're traveling halfway across city but you're getting a 9 minute slot uh between two meetings and probably when he's having a half a sandwich in his hand walking from one room to another um so you know it it again showed us that people didn't take founders time as seriously as they should i mean there there needs to be a basic respect for someone taking that time out to come all the way and meet you right and third even inside the meeting i get heard out for maybe 5 or 6 minutes um and remember i'm reasonably well educated i'm reasonably you know i'm reasonably good at what i do um i'm top of my class uh, for so many years uh so i'm not just some guy that's you know coming in with my eyes closed but they cut me off at minute 5 minute 6 and one of these vcs actually told me listen son you know you're going to compete against me the best thing for you to do is raise your money and give it to me i'll pay you a fee i'll pay you distribution don't bother building a fund right uh so imagine having that said to you when when you're coming to these guys for advice they've been around for 10 years you know they've they've gone through the same grind but uh that's all they have to say to you Uh so I think you know a series of anecdotes uh, it became more and more hilarious uh, as we went through those meetings but it gave us a clearer and clearer picture of exactly what problems founders face and therefore what our advantages would be and that's why we built 314 very differently the energy the culture just the vibe of the brand this looks a little bit different than the standard venture capitalist um from back then and even now and if we hadn't gone through that experience ourselves I don't think we'd be uh we look like we do we we think like we do and definitely we wouldn't take uh founders as seriously as we do today that's something that has taught us very clearly that's a huge advantage so we designed the entirety of 314's workflows to make sure founders never went through that experience with us we made sure we replied to every email we made sure that the turnaround time on decisions are between 3 and 5 days we made sure we said no to every deal that we don't want to invest in and explain why because the no is also important most of the time most vcs are seeing 3 or 4000 deals a year they're ghosting all of them right uh so the interesting thing is just being sympathetic to the founders requirements this being human frankly um gave us an extraordinarily interesting start and a very clear differentiation from fund one wow i can only imagine what that gut and the drop in your stomach when you're sitting across whoever this this vc was and he tells you that <laughs> It's not easy. <laughs> so, how do you hold yourself up to a higher caliber to make sure that you don't fall into that same space? You know, now you're on the opposite side of the table. You have four funds, almost a half a billion dollars. You know, very, very different conversation than seven years ago when you're this newcomer, new kid on the block that's trying to make his way into the industry. Now you're up there with the top. How do you make sure that a the ego doesn't get to your head, and you still have that? you know that evite and that that you know that enthusiasm as that young kid that came into the industry and two how do you make sure that you stay humble and you stay like that kid that got that gut in the stomach and you know what that feeling is like and you don't want anyone else to have that feeling too as a great question i i think about that almost every day uh so every one of the lessons i learned while i was speaking to those vcs back then and you know we've been asking those questions to everyone we meet even as we scale 314 There are 107 or 108 unicorns in India now, right? 
uh, we see starting in 2015 2016 the start of the third wave like i mentioned before there aren't too many vcs in india so every founder that's building an internet company is coming to you to meet you they're, they're struggling to find ways to get introduced if you're a fund in 2022 but you were around for the last 15 years there's almost a guaranteed chance you saw at least 100 of those companies that came by you and became unicorns and there's a, i can guarantee to you the best fund in the country has maybe 20 unicorns out of 100 right no one's done even though they had this unbelievable leverage and this almost monopolistic position back then they didn't catch all of them they weren't able to catch the trends in the market i'm pretty sure they feel like they missed the opportunity of a lifetime looking back from today i would at least and this remembering what they are going through in their mind today makes me very sure that i need to work extra hard to never put myself in that situation so like i said it's very simple we have four unicorns today we'll probably have a couple more over the next couple of years we finished our first ipo uh, so it's been a really power packed six or seven years for us uh, we've done things that normally take a lot longer in, in india at least um, but we've also missed at least the same number if not more companies that have turned out to be unicorns even after we started right so we even we haven't caught all the companies that became unicorns after us and i'm only using unicorn as is arbitrary mode of success it doesn't mean that's a fantastic company for for forever but of course a billion dollars being created from a seed of 5 or 10 million that's something and that you feel that pinch is an early stage we see uh, i diagnose every deal that we said no to that turn out turn out to become a good company uh, i make sure the entire investment team at 314 all of us individually make sure we adapt our patterns and our modes of selection so that we don't miss opportunities uh, in the same manner again so we're almost doubling down on making sure that every miss makes us better at catching the next ball that comes at us and that keeps us super humble that makes sure that no matter how well you know we have two 7x funds we have a first ipo a lot of things going quite well but you know you lose companies you hit you miss product market fit some rounds don't close on time there are also things that are not working out to plan obviously we take the entire event spectrum in a totality and and, and look at it and say there's nothing here we can take for granted right and all of this could have turned out in very different ways had we been different people both positively and negatively so that's what keeps us honest that's what keeps us motivated and very importantly we've realized that it's deeply vital to our industry to be on the same level as a founder every day the moment there's a disparity on either side the moment there's a, that start of that condescension there's the moment there's an ego battle on a board uh, it's almost always guaranteed that doesn't end well for everyone and it's just important for us just to remember all this uh, all this together and i think if you live this long enough like uh, and i think long enough is is subjective but even for 3 or 4 years i'm sure all of us at our age will say yeah there's just there's no point in being egoistic right so that's a short answer i don't i i can tell you if it worked for us in year 20 uh, <laughs> I'll, i'll make sure to to reach out to you and share some more stories but um that's basically it i think uh, if we are able to remember this lesson uh, i am I'm, i'm very sure that we will stay as hungry as we are today i want to talk about you mentioned this right now the missed opportunities yep. um, how do you go about when you or analyze or have you know after you, you see a company that you missed that opportunity what's that session like with your team members of and how do you analyze like, you know miss, missed opportunity or why you missed it what goes on in that yeah i mean it, it's it's tough because every missed opportunity succeeded for a different reason right uh, sometimes we just got the tam wrong and while the founder may have said he's building for segment a 
he probably it didn't work just like maybe we thought it wouldn't work he pivoted very quickly very efficiently he found segment b maybe we didn't figure out he'd moved to a different segment that's on us it was no obligation for him to come back and tell us but most founders do and that's why it's important to say no nicely as well but if you went on to a different segment that's a different tam and we didn't catch that there's an adjacent tam that we could have built this company for so let's talk to the founder and let's make those adjustments if both sides agree uh, we we didn't put in the effort to curate what that path would look like and have that conversation with that founder so that's been an interesting turn of events for us in our some of our misses a uh, second very interesting thing that that we have done well is we've been very careful about being outside the mainstream in fact preempting consensus on what is a large outcome in india for example when every indian indian vc was doing uh, broad based e-commerce horizontal e-commerce like flipkart and and a dozen other large companies that came out uh, that was similar we had zero companies in our portfolio that looked like flipkart just like e-commerce platforms we were building vertical e-commerce companies like licious and a few others right and licious ray is is the first d2c startup in india that's become a unicorn it's the most valuable d2c startup in the country uh, we led the seed round in 2016 um if we hadn't thought differently from the mainstream we wouldn't have found the fantastic founders that built licious right uh, and no one else was looking at vertical commerce so we knew that even they knew they're not part of the mainstream so let's make sure we we both realize we're building something non consensus but if we fall for consensus then we're getting the same kind of market beta and then we're buying the same logic and then we're literally making sure we don't fulfill our original criteria criteria of investing slightly before the mainstream so we found that a lot of the, some of the companies you said no to that went on to become large successes we didn't realize that they were actually preempting the mainstream we read mainstream wrong right that happens quite often that's something we're very honest about and i think the last thing we've we've gotten better at today but in the first few funds it was challenging is betting on people uh we were slightly academic in our approach early on we said it has to be this this clear alignment of people product market and timing we need to all these things to measure all these things and became far too quantitative at a point we we had to give up and admit that there's just something about giving the founder space and allowing the people that to figure out what the shape of that company looks like after you do the seed round right so there's a leap of faith involved in every seed as you know today but i think we were a little bit too academic to admit that to ourselves back then that led to a few misses so again i think we had to go through these experiences to learn these lessons i wouldn't change a thing maybe maybe i would say yes to a couple of companies uh, i correct myself but definitely um, those are lessons you have to learn on the field it's part of the growing up experiences you know everybody right. makes the same exact mistakes every startup will go through the same mistakes every firm will go through the same mistakes but in order to you know but you can't take anyone else's anyone else's playbook and apply it to your own so you have to go through that experience you you mentioned now that you know part of the process that you're changing um is the fact that you know you're measuring for people in the academics so what are some of like those intangible things that you currently look for in a founder um when they come to pitch you yeah that's a great question so initially like i said we were quite quantitative in our approach of people to people as well um so the vc ecosystem uh, back then was still very focused on the quality of the degree uh, maybe you had some experience at mckinsey or bain or something you're from the iits or you're from some ivy leagues or whatever iams so it was a lot of like selecting like that we realized we can never do right so we didn't fall into that pattern thankfully but we fell into some other patterns for example we said we need to have founders that have some experience with that market before they're starting a startup in that market so if you're starting a fintech company 
we said unless you work at the bank or, or x and y and z uh, it'd be hard for us to back a company build a, a team building fintech is a new experience right but fast forward to today a lot of the teams that have succeeded in fintech weren't necessarily people with financial institutional experience and it mattered that they came from the outside because then they challenged the system in interesting ways they were just able to build differently so today we're much more open and and much more people oriented in our approach to what makes a good founding team and therefore we we have fewer rules on what we accept in terms of the definition of a founding team so for example another example i can give you is is back then vcs are technically very averse to supporting single founder companies they prefer two or three founders almost always there are blogs again written about why sure i mean i think that makes sense from a distribution of of work point of view but some of our biggest companies today are solo founders some of the biggest companies in the us are solo founders and i think there's something to be said about not having silly rules about how many founders is the right team it's about treating each case uniquely and assessing that person's competence to build a great team around them right and that also matters so i think we've gotten better at making sure that we don't fall into those patterns but it just comes down to knowing how to read people and you need to see 10 20000 deals before you're sure you have a pattern that's unique to you that works consistently and repeatably so we have that today but it's taken us to see 23500 deals over 7 years to get there wow is there anything else that you do outside of venture that helps you with in venture like you mentioned before i think one of the best skills probably to have in venture is let's say being able to really understand people you know so psychology and EQ i think is probably the highest thing that a person needs in venture in general in startups um so is there anything else outside that essentially helps you become better for sure i think um i can speak personally but the the people i respect the most in investing uh, especially in india the guys have been around for 30 years and giving serious serious alpha on on the markets um these are the most put together people i've met um they they come they collected they don't react um they've seen many recessions crashes you know corrections um nothing is faced their ability to read the market and make defensible decisions and my learning from them is that they worked so hard on themselves to make sure they're able to express their learnings clearly irrespective of the situation around them so i think the first thing i have to do outside of vc is work on myself so it's health it's endurance it's exercise it's spending time with your family it's it's tuning out when you have to tune out i was speaking about that before the panel i'm due a vacation but in all fairness working on yourself is really important and and just being better people before you're in a position to judge other people i think you have to earn that that position uh at least i make sure that i'm always working on myself to remain in that position a uh, second very interesting thing we have started doing uh, a lot more of is speaking to people outside of tech in mainstream industry and challenging ourselves with their insights on why some things would or wouldn't work a certain way so vcs are typically very narrow focused on tech and founders and and blogs and you know uh, events and panels and so on but india is a you know it's a huge very diverse uh, you know it's a large population uh, i don't even speak all the languages that, that are spoken in india today there is so much diversity in thinking and and how to approach what's happening in the country so i found that just speaking to more people outside of tech um, even from like banks mutual funds like even mainstream large industries makes us better at realizing where we need to draw boundaries on what we know and again it comes down to being humble and making sure um that that's something that you know you're always testing yourself on and finally of course we ask founders for a lot of feedback 
we're constantly asking them, what can we do better for you? Like, what could we have done differently to help you with that decision? And we're surprised to hear a lot of times that founders are surprised that we're asking them, right? No one asks that question. So, so we just put that out there saying, well, what can we do to be better, better partners for you? And we got a dozen fantastic responses that have just made us better at being more, more useful as VCs in the early stage. So I can keep going on. Of course, we read, we do a lot of work. We, we talk to people like you from all time zones in the world, trying to find uh, interesting lessons we can share with each other. Uh, but it comes down to making sure that we're consistently the best people we can be, do this job consistently. You know, in general, our job down in this world, you know, we live for 90, hopefully 120 years, is to make this, is to leave this world a better place. And right. each one of us individually have our own specific mission, what we need to accomplish in order to, rec- you know, to make the world better, to spread goodness, positivity, goodness, and kindness. And like you're saying before, it's, you know, part of that process is making sure that we're, we're we are wholeness and we are centered in the sense of no, not just knowing our mission, but being able to have humility and being able to do everything. You know, so if I exercise, and I do everything, I'm able to show up much better. So if I take care of my emotional health, able to show up much better. And the same thing over here, a lot of what you're saying, when you're able to take care of that, your family, your, your mental health, your emotional health, things like that, you are able to show up better in every single type of situation that you are in. Okay. Just processing, I'm processing that. I'm just feeling it through and, and understanding it much more because there's so much, you could go, we could go so much deeper into that process. Right. Now, I'll give you an interesting lesson I learned. Um, we, we have a series of very deep mythologies in India, like stories of the gods and the old you know, kingdoms and whatever. So these are kids, and as kids, you learn a lot of these things in, in your native languages. Um, one of the most interesting lessons I've taken away uh, just growing up in India is that every emotion we have as human beings can be channeled in unique ways to give us a strength to express a certain type of competence. Right? So even anger can be useful when it's used in a certain way to motivate, to drive you, to pull you out of what is otherwise an important, an impossible situation. Uh, so we have stories for every flavor of emotion, right? So um, if, if you're a comic fan, you know, I'm a big comic fan, uh, the Green Lantern, the Lantern rings is a black lantern, a blue lantern, and so on. They're like, there are a spectrum of rainbow colors for every emotion, <laughs> and there's a lantern for it. Um, it, that, that it gave me a very interesting analogy to just how important it is to just own what you're feeling and use that to make sure that that's also something that can give you a unique outcome if used a certain way. So where does that insight come from? It comes from getting angry on all kinds of things, you know, as you're growing up and all of us get angry, we've been through tough times. Um, but finally realizing all that meant something, it got you to a certain place. And if you don't use what you've been through, then there's no point of having been through all of that in the first place. So it's this big in- investigation into the karmic outcomes of, of emotion. But the end story is, it just makes you feel that much more at peace that you're not, you're not foolish or weird for feeling emotions when things go right or wrong, right? It's more important what you use them for and how you keep focus on what you're actually here to do. And I think um, if, if you're able to keep these, these uh, lessons in your active memory, in your RAM, it's hard every day, but uh, that hopefully gives you an interesting lens on what you're experiencing as you go through this, this very interesting job. It's very easy for us to talk about it, you know, before or hindsight. But when we're going through That's that right. difficult period, it's so difficult to constantly remember those messages and lessons. <laughs> you know, our emotions and our amygdala just take over. Yeah. That's right. You know, it's, it's another thing. It's like, you showed, you and me, I and you, we, we only, sh- we showed up here based off all the experiences and everything and every single type of decision that we went through until now. 
So it wasn't like we just woke up today and showed up now. We showed up with every single type of bias and every single type of you know decision, every single type of experience, and that made us who we are. We are a collective of the experiences that we went through. That's absolutely and, you right. Know, it's it's important to accept that. I see a lot of people, you know, growing up, myself, my friends, um, we've all had to go through this very individual journey to accept ourselves, right? And accept what we've been through and hope and, and make it mean something, right? It doesn't happen automatically. Uh, to accept that you have the power to make it mean something is also this, like I mentioned before, this is this, this discovery of confidence. And I think so many things have to overlap to make sure you're prepared to start making decisions this way. And I think to answer your original question here on, on making an impact and making a difference, if I'm able to help even one other person, get, you know, just see themselves to be much more competent, much more evolved, and that all of this that they've been through has mattered. And therefore, they become just so much more supremely efficient at expressing themselves, whether it's a founder, whether it's an employee, whether it's a teammate at 314. Um, if, if I'm able to be part of even one of those journeys, I think that's time well spent. Because someone did that for me, someone did that for you. Someone's done it for someone else always. And I think paying that forward is a responsibility we have to take seriously. And especially in VC, you know, founders go through so much pain, right? Um, it's, it's almost always impossible to find a linear, straightforward path to success. There's a lot of heartbreak uh, along the way. And we found that uh, it's not only just, you know, sending a nice email or, or a condolence message on WhatsApp. I think showing up as people, and being someone you can rely on, especially when times are bad, even if the value goes to zero, I mean, that's going to happen. But you showed up and, and you were someone they could talk to. And, and that memory that they leave with you and you leave with them, um, that just there's no price on that. Right? There's no valuation or IRR that you can place um, on, on that relationship. So I think that that's something I'm grateful for. That's something that I'm happy Venture Capital loves us to be. Uh, in a position to help. And I think, of course, that's something we take very seriously. Uh, we, we treat that as, as stewardship, as some, a responsibility you cannot take lightly. I totally, totally agree. So what are you most excited about next? You know, we're about to enter a whole new phase with so many new technologies, so many new things. The world is changing. A lot of things are happening. What are you excited about? Yeah, I think um, it's going to be an interesting decade for India, for sure. Um, there's just so much innovation being attempted Right? Um, and I think there's been a cultural change in the mindset of, of young Indians as well. Their parents are more accepting that they may start a startup after college, which was, which was almost impossible to accept would become mainstream even 10 years back. Um, you know, 10 years back, you either the, the most riskiest thing you could do is become a cricketer right? and, and, and try to play for India. Today, the riskiest thing you can do and parents accept, okay, my kid might try that, is start a company, which is fantastic. Um, we have, you know, in, in India, a new experience that you, you can order food on an app on your phone in the morning and buy the stock of that company if you like the service in the afternoon, which is great. You couldn't buy the stocks of the companies whose products and services you used before those IPOs happened in the last 18 months. So I think a series of changes have happened that make sure that from 2022 onwards, post-COVID, India is likely to be a very different country compared to what it was last 25 years. And while, yes, we get compared to China too often, I think... It's a very different system. We'll be very different countries. The outcomes will look different. Um, if India could chart a more sustainable path, we've made very interesting commitments to renewable energy, going off carbon, you know, limiting our, our use of fossil fuels. Um, if we're actually able to deliver, we might actually be the first country of this size to attempt a new path to you know, 5 trillion or 10 trillion as an outcome on GDP. So a lot of exciting things that makes us feel that there's something new to do. Right. 
Uh, we're not just following someone else's example, and therefore we have to face new challenges and solve them every day. And I think the novelty of the experience makes it that much more exciting for young people. And that's why so much more innovation is being attempted. Of course, all of it doesn't succeed. There'll be losses. Your money will be written off. But the, the impact that has and even the learnings from failure, I think that just makes for a more resilient uh, people overall. So it, it should be interesting times. I'm very excited, certainly, and I'm very happy that I have at least 20 years left in my career to see so much change coming ahead of me. I mean, I hope you have way more than 20 years, but it's more about making sure that we're on top of it, educating ourselves, knowing that we only know so much and there's a lot to learn. And, and like you mentioned previously, having that constant humility to remember that um, not just there's more to know, but you know, to know our place and to learn from others. That's right. So what do we tell, and I want to phrase this you know, both ways, a 99-year-old Pranav that wants to tell his current age, his current message right now, going forward, you know, what would he, what would message would he tell him? And then at the same time, face it the other way, what would a, a Pranav right now tell his young self coming out of Stanford? Oh, wow. Um, I hope 99-year-old tells me it was all worth it. Um, all the time I spent away from family, all the time I spent away from my son. Um, I hope he can tell me it was all worth it. And I think that would that would make me feel just more comfortable about the daily sacrifice, the daily compromise you make, right? For for the work, for 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 the standards, to meet the expectations, uh, of course, to be there for the team and so on. And and looking back at at 20, 20 year old me, um, I think the most important thing I would tell him is you'll figure it out, because I think everyone just everyone is afraid, they're paranoid when when they're in college. You know, the imposter syndrome, you know, they're, they're considered, they're written about now. So, you know, it's a real thing. Um, just telling, giving them the confidence that it, it'll work out and, and you have it and you, you'll make it. Um, I think that that's all you need. Honestly, that's all most people need, really. Um, and I, I didn't have that very often because, like I said, I was away from home, you know, alone in, in, in the country for the first time. Um, that, that would have made things at least uh, slightly better for my heart, if you will. <laughs> Less stress overall. I think our next recording and next conversation should definitely be about building up self-confidence and uh, yep. building up yourself, internal self. I think we should have a conversation around that. I think that can help a lot of founders and VCs and people because, you know, lack of self-confidence and taking that plunge into doing something is the biggest hindrance to multiple, multiple things. Not, not even the fear of failure. It's just the fact that people don't believe in themselves enough, you know, that imposter syndrome and everything else. Wow. Pranav, I want to thank you. Um, I've learned a lot. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I know we could talk for so much longer. I know we have so many more topics to do, you know, a proper, proper deep dive into, but I know there's also going to be multiple, multiple more conversations. So I want to thank you because I know this conversation is going to benefit multiple people, people that are interested about the Indian startup ecosystem, people that are building startups, people that want to be able to overcome their own internal objections and lack of self-confidence to start something. So it's going to give hope and inspiration to multiple people, which is our job. So I want to thank you so much. And, I go, and it goes without saying, I am here for 314. I'm here for your family anytime. Consider you always have, uh, uh, you know, your biggest fan in New York. Um, and I'm always, always here to help you guys. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ephraim. It's been a pleasure to, to speak to you. Uh, I can't tell you how much, uh, how much of, of, of a delight it's been to just talk about these things to someone who faces the same challenges. So thank you so much, Ephraim. I, I must say it's been such a pleasure to speak to you about such interesting things that we've been through. 
Uh, I don't get to speak about these things very often, to be honest. And I'm definitely looking forward to a future conversation for sure. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ephraim. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. I hope you learned something that you're able to apply to your personal or professional life today. If there is any suggestions or feedback, or you would like to suggest a guest for the Founder Stories podcast, please reach out to me at LinkedIn at Ephraim Yarmak. And I look forward to hearing all your comments. Now, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Because when you leave a review, you are doing your part for more people to come across and find this podcast so they can listen, get inspired, and take action within their life. Now, have a great week, and I hope to see you back very soon.